Can we see our differences as gifts rather than burdens? In today's episode, you'll hear a conversation with Erin Rafferty. She's an anthropologist, theologian, and pastor who lectures on youth, church, and culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. Her claim is that our differences are not a burden, but a gift from the God who is also different from us. She recently wrote an article titled Disruptive Youth Toward an Ethnographic Turn in Youth Ministry, co-authored with Wes Ellis. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I want to start with a quote that you have in your article. And it claims that youth ministry was invented as a technology to solve the problem of adolescence in the church. It's a really interesting claim. So can you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. Um, I maybe was a little audacious in claiming that. But I think... One of the challenges in, and this is going to come from my anthropological sensibility, but in experiencing life alongside anybody who's different is the tendency, I think, to presume that we have the ability to understand um, what they're going through and what's going on. And so I think when it came to psychological um, developmental theories of adolescence, that gave such a window of understanding into youth um, and how they were wrestling, I think of Eric Erickson, um, with their identity um, at a pivotal moment. But And Eric Erickson is kind of the one of the leading scholars in the developmental, traditional understanding of youth development. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of youth workers and particularly people who write on youth ministry have drawn on Erickson's developmental theories, particularly these stages um, of identity um, and looking at identity as a crisis that youth are going to and wrestling um, with uh, their growth from being a young person or a child into an adult. So, um, I think what I meant by that and what I was thinking of is there's this schema where a person um, is a child and they move through youth and then they become an adult. And a lot of times in the church, it feels like we don't have patience or we don't have appreciation for people as they are. And we're trying so hard to understand them that at the same time, we're ushering them through these stages and we're trying to use technology. So particularly whether that be... um, psychology or anthropology or sociology or even actual technology to understand the people in front of us rather than using what I would call a more ethnographic point of view, which would be listening um, and taking a little bit more of a epistemological, humble point of view that we don't know what it's like for them and what they're going through. But we have this tremendous opportunity to listen um, for their voices. Yeah. So let's break down some of the tools that you're using. Um, So you say we use technologies. And in that you're describing, you know, anthropology or psychology. Um, You're trained as an anthropologist and as a theologian. And you're a pastor. So can you talk us through a little bit about how anthropology helps you do theology and how those three things relate in your approach to youth ministry? Sure. Um, Well, so I grew up just fascinated by um, different languages and different cultures and people around the world. Um, I think it was in kindergarten or first grade that me and my sisters were bored and my mom said, what do you want to do? And we said, study Japanese, which like, I don't. (laughs) That was really ambitious. (laughs) Yeah. And I think my mom was thinking that too. And then she found, um, 
some exchange student from the high school and we had these Japanese lessons. And to me, that was just such a opening up of my worldview growing up in Wisconsin. And I think I just had this conviction from a very early age that diversity is God's gift to us. Um, and that um, as much as there's so many misunderstandings between people who are different, um, that there's a problem when people are viewed as problems. <laughs> so when people who are different from us are viewed as problems or when difference is viewed as deficiency. And that led me um, into the study of anthropology um, because in anthropology, difference is a value. Um, it's not a problem. So um, we start from the premise as anthropologists that um, it's really important that I'm different um, from the people that I'm studying because that's a tool in research. It's through that difference that meaning can be made and understanding can be fostered. Um, so we don't look at, oh, we need to tear down these differences. Um, we look at, oh, can't they be great instruments for understanding? Um, and that's always been super enticing and attractive to me, um, especially as a person of faith. So when I was in seminary, I just kept looking around for this point of view. I kept um, searching for people who thought the difference came from God and was a value, um, and searching for courses on culture that would allow me to serve the church better um, and interpret culture. And that led me back into anthropology and then led me back to the church. So it's kind of like this in and out movement. And I think about it as um, a process of translation. So when I think about my own call um, and what I'm doing, whether it be as a pastor or an academic, um, I think I went into life thinking, oh, call is singular. You know, we're called to one thing. And then I realized, well, if I'm going to be a cultural translator of sorts, so I'm actually helping people understand each other. I mean, my call can't be singular. So I have to be able to speak both, you know, Chinese and English. I have to be able to speak Spanish. You know, I have to be able to um, be open to differences. And I have to be able to be who I am, you know, and be different at the same time for um, that understanding to be affected. I don't need to let go of those things. Other people don't need to let go of those things that like God has actually made us different um, for a reason. And um, God appreciates our differences and you know wants to work in, in and through the people that we are. So can you describe for those of us who are not trained in anthropology, um, explain uh, ethnography. What is that as a research method? And how do you use it? Well, this is actually kind of a loaded question because so many people, um, even in practical theology now, but lots and lots of disciplines are starting, you know, religious studies departments um, are starting to use ethnography as a tool. So on the one hand, it's a method. Um, it's a method of making sense of people um, and environments and groups of people. Anthropology is more concerned with particularities. Um, sociology is a little bit more concerned with groups of people. But in anthropology, the method that we often use in our um, study is called participant observation. So what I did when I went to China is I lived there for two full years and I lived amongst the people that I was studying. So it's an immersion um, mindset. So you're immersing yourself in the culture. Um, and then you're participating at the same time that you're also observing. Um, and you're not trying to bracket your sensibilities. Like it's not like a laboratory, you know, where there's an experiment and you're trying to control all these things. That's actually the great excitement and adventure and mystery and messiness is that you can't control anything because you're in someone else's environment. So you have to submit to whatever's going on with them. And you're the cultural novice. So that makes it different um, from a lot of other social sciences because um, when I talked about 
epistemological humility, we actually have to have a lot of humility around what we're going to be able to accomplish or do or understand and kind of see where things go. So even as we might come in with our own research questions, those always shift because the people in front of you if you're listening to them, like they're asking really good questions or they're telling you really important things about their situation. So we take really seriously what other people have to say about their um, particular context. But we also watch, you know, and listen and participate to see what is it they do to study it. But I guess the thing that's important to me is that as much as ethnography is a method, I think it's also an epistemology. So it's a way of um, knowing about the world and being and understanding. So it's not just that we take this tool and we kind of apply it to this situation. I think as an anthropologist, I believe in what I'm doing. Like, I believe in if you want to learn about people who are different from you, spending time with them is the best way to do that. Like, and listening to them and valuing what they have to say. So I think um, in that sense, the idea that we like supremely value difference is something that I just think can be such a gift to um, theology and to practical theology, especially which takes seriously lived human experience. If we're going to do that, we have got to spend time with people, but do it in such a way that we actually really value what they have to contribute. I mean, I just think if you want to go on an adventure, like if you want to be surprised in life, you know, you don't just like sit there and think about <laughs> what you think <laughs> someone <Yeah>. else. <laughs> or imagine someone different Exactly. From like you go there and you mm-hmm. do this really hard thing of living alongside them. Um, and obviously there are limits to that, you know, method. Like it's not perfect. But um, it's something that I think in the church often, um, I think it's just we're so good at... Um, experiencing other people's differences and then thinking we understand. Um, But we don't actually like engage them in conversation. We don't actually listen and we don't actually sit there and pay attention to what kind of might be coming across between the lines. And so then that difference becomes like an obstacle actually to conversation Mm -hmm. and ministry because it's not something that's playing out in relationship. It's something that we already have in our minds that we've either like reified or it's big and it's, you know, a problem um, rather than a gift. Yeah. So when you're describing the gift that you see in ethnography, it sounds like there's this incarnational element to it and something else that we might describe as empathy, but it's also compassion. Mm -hmm. So we can grow this uh, in our relationship with another, with one another through kind of having this different posture of really listening and being able to articulate or relate to someone else's experience in a new way. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that you like pushed me back <laughs> towards the theological language. Um, because the other thing that I think about ethnography is I don't think it's just a tool to learn about other people. Um, I really think that it can be a tool to learn more about God. And the thing that I have arrived at as an anthropologist, you know, who's dabbling as a practical theologian is that God is different from us too. And I think there's often this presumption, and you know, it is, and it's especially effective, right, in youth ministry to consider God as your best friend and to have a personal relationship. Jesus is my homeboy. Yes. Um, And, you know, I think that there is a certain, there's truth to that, of course, because we do actually have a really intimate um, relationship with God in the same way that we have intimate relationships with human beings. But in the same way that human beings are different from us, 
God is different from us. And to honor that difference and to try to understand it, um, to appreciate it is also holy. So I think that that's something that I'm excited about and that I can see is kind of a learning and um, something that's transferable from anthropology or ethnography into theology. So you talked a little bit about your posture and your experience living in China. Um, let's let's pivot from that and think about how how one might take this posture, specifically in youth ministry, where we can assume that in a lot of churches, the young people are kind of growing up within the same culture, mm-hmm. at least in a lot of respects, as their parents or their elders. Um, so how does this, how do you translate that into that sort of space where things might be at least somewhat homogenous? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it um, is not going to feel natural for adults to think about learning <laughs> from youth. Um, and I don't think it's going to feel uh, natural to necessarily appreciate those differences because you're right. It's not that youth are a completely different culture. I mean, we share a common culture. Um, but in my um, work that I've done out of childhood studies, um, when I've looked at the research where people have done um, uh, research trying to understand children and youth and they've tried to become more like them and break down the differences between them, I mean, it doesn't work, right? Because youth are really aware that we're adults, you know, and whether we want to be or not, we're placed into that cultural category. So I think embracing uh, that difference and that experience and actually um, sharing stories. um, And I think in this way, like my work isn't that dissimilar from um, Amanda Drury's work or from Kenda Dean's work, because they take really seriously what young people have to say. So, I mean, on the one hand, it's listening. and being open and valuing the voices of youth and trusting that God is active in their lives. But on the other hand, I think it's really being true to ourselves um, and who we are and our experience of faith. And so that sharing of stories about the life that we've lived, I mean, I actually think that as much as youth like roll their eyes at adults, they're curious, you know, like they want to know. I mean, aren't your favorite stories like the stories that your parents tell you about when they were like younger and they were naughty and they got in trouble? You know, or yeah. Something? And you're like, who is this person? <laughs> right. That- exactly. Yeah. So there, so that difference is really apparent there, you know, so not trying to paper over the differences that you have um, if you're the youth leader or you're the person who's active in the church and um, interacting with the youth. But, you know, being aware and conscious and open to the difference that that difference can make. Um, And so I think that that can look, you know, a lot of different ways. But I think one way is sharing those stories um, and kind of telling, um, you know, just owning your own experience, especially since like our experience can be really messy and we want to hide it because it feels like it's not relevant or helpful because we like to tie up the loose ends. (laughs) Yeah. So we look presentable for other people. Yeah. You know, and I think like, um, you know, our young people aren't given that luxury. You know, I mean, they're in a particular stage of life um, where they're often kind of on display (laughs) in a huge way. And that makes them really vulnerable. So being really vulnerable with them and kind of putting our lives on display um, and, like you said, not tying up loose ends, I think, um, is a tremendous opportunity. Sounds like there's a big demand for authenticity (laughs) in our relationships there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think authenticity is 
a huge buzzword um, right now, uh, both in, you know, academic circles um, and just among young people um, and what they're looking for. And um, my students always teach me so much when I'm reading student papers lately. I get a lot of them that say, you know, young people can tell like when you're being fake (laughs) Um, and they absolutely can. You know, so I think that there's this. Yeah, it's an opportunity to um, enter into frank um, and holy (laughs) and difficult conversations and I think you know in the midst of some of those conversations I think there's risk I mean that's the thing about what I notice about my work in anthropology is there's so much risk I mean and so we have to take more risks you know so what does that look like (laughs) what does like a risky relationship look like well I think for me it's so risky because it's predicated on all of these challenges that I've had to take on to understand like the very you know act of speaking this other language where I'm messing up and I'm not even like communicating um in the way I want to you know I am stumbling through (laughs) my language and I don't know the cultural conventions and I think I'm inviting youth workers to consider um what the wisdom of that kind of um naivete can offer us in actually learning uh, the the ways that, you know, youth are communicating with us and like exploring how they're different from us in relationships. So not having and it's like impossible for us to do because we have all these presumptions about who young people are. Right. And a lot of them that they're hearing from us are that they're dissatisfying us. Right. They're failing us. You know, they're not doing what we want them to do. Um, And so that's all out there. Right. And so I think then, you know, taking this risk of um, affirming them. Right. And demonstrating um, their importance by actually taking that kind of one down position and listening to them um, and attempting to speak their language um, is risky. Right. Because we want to maintain our leadership role. You know, we mm-hmm. want to kind of maintain all of these social hierarchies, but we aren't going to really learn a lot, right, if we're clinging to those things. And that's certainly not, I think, where God wants us to be is kind of clinging to those social hierarchies. I think uh, God, I mean, how are we going to have, you know, true communion with people if we don't kind of suspend? It's like suspending some of that control. And I just think that's no- another fabulous metaphor that like ethnographic fieldwork has to offer to, you know, Um, work in the church or to people who are practical theologians Um, because what we're doing is like you know suspending control to the people that we're studying or you know letting go of some of that control in this you know research environment but what we can do every day is let go of some of that control in our lives Um, and that would be to show um, well that would be to experience God right in a new way I mean that would be a real risk (laughs) Um, that I think we often are like clinging so tightly to everything and I don't think we realize that like even when we're interacting with youth that we're still clinging so tightly to all of that worldly stuff you know and God doesn't get to actually participate because we're not letting God Mm. we're not getting out of the way yeah yeah you talk about something called um ethical symmetry (laughs) and symmetrical privilege can you break down what that means I feel like you hinted at it when you said the one down position Mm -hmm. is that related yeah I mean those are not 
my terms. Um, those are terms out of childhood studies. Um, but ethical symmetry is about kind of breaking down some of those structural inequalities that if you're in a relationship with young people, um, and this is especially more of a research relationship, like it's always going to be the case that they have less authority than you do. So, I mean, the ethical symmetry is saying like the ethics should not be distorted in that way, even mm-hmm. if power is. And so it's kind of like trying to in some way participate in a new um power dynamic where young people um, have that respect um, and reverence. And I think this is like super um, important right now in our world where we're finding out about all of these um, abuses to women and to young people. Um, And so this attitude of um, or this research ethic, ethical symmetry, um, is looking at that. But I think it's there's it's beyond that because it's also trying to make sure that Um, once again, we don't look at difference as like this universal and static thing. We look at it as this local and dynamic thing that we're going to learn about in relationship with people. So we're not undermining people's ability to like tell their story. We're not undermining um, people for who they are, even before we get started in conversation, research, ministry with anybody. So I think that's what I was getting at with that. (laughs) Yeah. So when we think about difference and you think about um, communities of faith, Can you think of an example of somebody who's doing something really interesting that's outside of some of the traditional models that you're you're critiquing? Mm -hmm. Just to give an example, like this Sunday, I come out of worship and um, one of the men who has um, struggles with depression and anxiety. So he has some um, disabilities. He starts complaining to me about the children in service and how distracting they are. And then we have another young person who's. 14 who has developmental disabilities and makes a lot of noises and he says you know in our new church building like aren't we going to build a cry area in the narthex like I've seen places that have that and it was just such a challenging moment for me in ministry because I just wanted to scream because <laughs> I just wanted <laughs> it to all be got like, real really fast right <laughs> you know, I just wanted to be like I mean you know here's a person who has been so ostracized by his own family because of his own disabilities, who is being really frustrated and potentially inhospitable to other people in our community with disabilities. And I think it just, so, I mean, you asked for an example of something cool, but I think it just speaks to how difficult it actually is. Our relationships are really complex. (laughs) Yeah. To be, you know, in a community, especially a church community, and to, like, we always talk about being inclusive and being welcoming. But if you're doing it um it's so messy and um it's so difficult because all of these kind of competing needs that are in the same um community right um are gonna like butt up against each other (laughs) in a lot of ways and so I mean I tried in my most pastoral sensibility to explain to him you know we're not gonna do that in our new sanctuary and here's why you know because as hard as it is sometimes you know to be in worship all together we feel that God really has given us our differences um, as something that's valuable and something that testifies to uh, the beautiful diversity that's in the world. And so, you know, and then I invited him to sit closer to the front if these things in front of him were just distracting. And thankfully, he was like, really, he was like, oh, that that would really be helpful because um, part of my problem is I can't hear. (laughs) I was just like, wow. (laughs) Which is a really concrete thing that you can help address. Yes. I mean, and so... 
but but even that conversation, like it started off, you know, for me from such a difficult place of I just want to like yell and scream because I just thought we were getting so much closer to being able to um, be uncomfortable sometimes because other people had needs. And then here the person comes to me and says these things. But like after some time of talking, um, one thing that I just, you know, like I felt like that was a holy and difficult (laughs) and challenging conversation. And I'm glad, you know, that he is who he is. Like, you know what I mean? What he was saying to me is I was really struggling to focus in worship. Um, And while I think that to some extent he was presenting some of the other people in our community as problems, what my hope is, is by the end of the conversation, I mean, we were in a place where we weren't seeing people as problems anymore, you know, and we were reminded that we all really want to worship God together and we're not going to do it perfectly, you know, but it's a tremendous opportunity. Today, you heard from Aaron Rafferty, who will be one of the keynote speakers at a conference on youth ministry and disability hosted by the Seminary's Institute for Youth Ministry. In theology and ministry with young people, disability is often treated as a problem to be solved. But what if church leaders approached people with disabilities, not as a target audience in need of integration, but as active members of the body? How could the church be reshaped? The Institute for Youth Ministry is hosting a two-day event where they will engage both scholars and practitioners striving to create a broader conversation around ministry to young people with disabilities. If you are interested in joining their conversation, visit www.dym.ptsem.edu. That's dym.ptsem.edu. Thanks. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery Podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.